This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio. Hello and welcome to Alert Radio from May 6th, 2010. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Albee. And it is our final broadcast of the season. Today on the program, I'll have a conversation with Joel Harden. He is with the Research Department of the Canadian Labour Congress, and we will be discussing discussing the pension crisis in Canada. And Jeff will also be talking to Andrea Levy, Canadian Dimension Collective member. She'll also be weighing in on the issue. In light of May Day, we are going to have a conversation with union activist and longtime employee of the Canadian Union of Public Employees, Jane Stinson, and she's going to talk about the conditions of the working class in Canada. We'll also be talking to another activist, Sakura Saunders, who is the editor of protestbarrack.net. She'll be talking to us about the devastation that Canadian mining companies are causing in not only Canada, but in countries of the global south. We'll have the alert headlines... Around the left in seven days. And of course, music is the weapon. That and much more. And now the alert headlines from May 6th, 2010. A New Brunswick-based Aboriginal group and three men are suing the New Brunswick and federal governments for $13 billion in damages for alleged genocide and loss of Native lands over the past 400 years. They are also seeking a declaration that the two levels of government have no jurisdiction over Aboriginal and Métis people in the province. The lawsuit also demands the province stop all hunting, fishing and forestry prosecutions against Aboriginal and Métis people until the case is heard. The notice of action, filed in Moncton's Court of Queen's Bench, cites colonial actions dating back to 1610, saying they amount to genocide against Native people. Conservative Senator Nancy Ruth told a meeting of international women's equality rights groups Monday morning that it would be best for them to shut the fuck up about their concerns over the government's maternal health initiative. Ruth sponsored the meeting on Parliament Hill in which groups such as the Association for Women's Rights in Development, Action Aid International, and Action Canada for Population and Development participated in a panel discussion questioning Canada's leadership in the promotion of gender equality and women's rights. However, during the question and answer period, Ruth advised the room that pushing the abortion issue was not the right strategy if they really wanted progress on the maternal health issue. Bolivian President Evo Morales has ordered the nationalization of four private electricity companies. The four companies seized on Saturday account for more than half of Bolivia's electricity market. Altogether, the government now controlled 80% of electricity generation in the country. Morales has recently nationalized oil and gas reserves to redistribute wealth to Bolivia's indigenous majority. Britain's cash-strapped Ministry of Defence faces the prospect of further compensation payouts as hundreds of Iraqis held in British custody file complaints of abuse. The Ministry of Defence has already paid millions of pounds to claimants who alleged physical and sexual abuse and detention in southeast Iraq, where British forces were based between 2003 and 2009. 
The Maoist party in Nepal is enforcing what it says will be an indefinite strike in an attempt to force the government to resign. Thousands of Maoist opposition supporters are out on the streets of the capital, Kathmandu. The Maoists say Nepal's government is not supported by the people. The Maoists say the government has not consolidated Nepal's peace process and has failed to draft a new constitution. The strike follows a mass May Day rally of tens of thousands on Saturday when demonstrators demanded the resignation of the ruling party. Maoist leader Pushpa Kamal Dahal said revolution and major political changes in Nepal have come through street protests. On Wednesday, Greek workers staged a general strike to protest major austerity cuts Prime Minister George Papandreou announced in return for emergency loans from the International Monetary Fund and some European governments. Measures include banning increases in public sector salaries and pensions for at least three years, increases in sales taxes, a 10% increase in taxes on fuel, alcohol and tobacco, and cuts in social programs and education. The deal is designed to prevent Greece from defaulting on its massive debt. Hundreds of thousands of people marched in over 80 cities in support of immigrant rights and to protest Arizona's new immigration law that allows police officers to stop and interrogate anyone they suspect is an undocumented immigrant. Some of the largest May Day protests took place in Los Angeles, Dallas, Milwaukee, New York and Washington. Outside the White House, 35 people were arrested, including Congressman Luis Gutierrez, Last week, the union representing Major League Baseball players took the unprecedented step of calling for Arizona to repeal or modify the law. More than a quarter of Major League players are foreign-born. Fifteen teams conduct spring training in Arizona. And those are the alert headlines from May 6, 2010. And now around the left from May 6, 2010. CANSEC is Canada's largest weapons trade exhibition, and it will be held in Ottawa June 2nd to 3rd. The Coalition to Oppose the Arms Trade is organizing a rally for peace on June 2nd from 5 to 7 p.m., the same time a gala dinner for CANSEC exhibitors will take place. If you're in Ottawa, meet at the Bank Street entrance to Lansdowne Park and join the Coalition to Oppose the Arms Trade in optimizing interactions with many friends and allies in the struggles for peace, the environment, human rights, democracy, and third world solidarity. During the month of May, people from across the country will be celebrating labor and the arts as part of annual May Works festivals. To find events happening across Canada, check out the events page at CanadianDimension.com. There are two important conferences happening in Toronto this month, Marxism 2010 and Historical Materialism 2010. Marxism 2010 will take place May 28th to 30th at Ryerson University. The 2010 Conference on Historical Materialism is held at York University and will run from May 13th to the 16th. To find links to purchase tickets, check out the events page at CanadianDimension.com. And finally, I'd like to extend an invitation to alert listeners in Ottawa, Winnipeg, and Victoria to come and see a play written by yours truly, Jeff Hughes. The play is called Unequal Harvest, 
The theatrical company is called Piecemeal Theatrical Productions, and this play I will be performing in in Ottawa at the Fringe Theatre Festival, June 17th to 27th. The Winnipeg Fringe Festival happens from July 14th to 25th, and the Victoria Fringe Festival occurs from August 26th to September 5th. The play covers global food issues, and I hope that our listeners will consider coming out. And that is Around the Left for the week of May 6th, 2010. This is Alert Radio. We're at CanadianDimension.com. I'm Jeff Hughes. Pensions sufficient to keep retirees from growing old in poverty are now under frontal attack. Pensions in peril is the main focus of the May-June issue of Canadian Dimension magazine. Alert has interviews today with two of the authors, Joel Harden and later Andrea Levy. Joel Harden is with the Research Department of the Canadian Labour Congress. We reached him at the CAW Family Education Centre at Port Elgin, Ontario. Welcome to Alert Radi- Radio, Joel. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. So give us a quick outline on the, pre- the pension crisis in Canada. Who is at risk of losing their retirement and why? Well, uh, to be honest, that's part of the story, but not the entire story. So I'm sure Andrea will elaborate on, given what she focuses on, uh, looking at pensions. The first part would fit exactly what you've just mentioned. Uh, we have, you know, at the moment, about 38.5% of Canadian workers with pension coverage. The majority of those folks would be public sector workers. For those in the private sector, you're looking at about one in every five workers that have a workplace pension. And given the rash of insolvencies and bankruptcies at prominent companies like Nortel, Abitibi, Bowwater, Canwest Global, there are many workers and their unions and non-union workers uh, who are quite fearful about what could happen to years and years of retirement savings. That's not the whole picture, though. We have 38.5% of Canadian workers now that have workplace pensions. The majority of Canadian workers, you know, 17.2 million people, 11 million of those 17.2 million people have no workplace pension at all, and that's as much, if not a bigger story, that we actually have grown a pension system in this country that looks a lot like American Medicare, where if you're lucky to get a decent pension through work, you can be counted uh, you know, rather, uh, rather gingerly in the, in the have class, but most people are in the have not class, and that's what they're worried about, particularly in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Well, what can be done to save those fortunate enough to have pensions, uh, those union members mm-hmm. who are at risk of losing their pensions as companies go bankrupt or try to protect their profits by cutting their pension obligations? Well, there's two major strategies that the Canadian Labour Congress has proposed, that the Labour Movement has proposed. The first uh, is ensuring that there actually is a system in place across the country that protects people's pensions when a company goes into bankruptcy. There's 34 other countries around the world that have some means to do that, either through a mandatory insurance system that ensures people's pensions up to a certain amount per month uh, for their monthly pension check, or they have bankruptcy law that puts workers' claims first ahead of other creditors when a bankruptcy proceeding happens. At the moment, on a pan-Canadian basis, Canada has neither. We have no bankruptcy laws that privilege their pension uh, earnings, their deferred wages, above banks and deep-pocketed creditors that often stuff up a lot of the money in a bankruptcy proceeding, and we don't have a pan-Canadian insurance system to protect people's pensions. So we need one or both of those things. What about the 11 million workers who don't have a workplace pension and rely on the Canadian pension plan for their retirement years? Well, you've just given the clue to the answer. The 
the the reality is, while most people don't have you know an employer specific pension plan at work, they are members, in our opinion, of the best pension plan that is available to most people in the country, which is the Canada Pension Plan. The only issue is that it's been kept modest over the years for very specific reasons. We have a very vocal and a very influential financial sector in this country, and they have insisted that they develop individual retirement products to sell to people rather than have the Canada Pension Plan take on a greater role. At the moment, the Canada Pension Plan only is designed to replace 25% of the average wage in retirement. So the average wage at the moment is $41,000. You can think of uh, a pension check of 25% of that being the, the maximum goal that CPP deals out. But if you don't look at maximum goals and if you look at reality, which is the average CPP check that's currently being paid out to seniors, what you discover is that the average CPP check right now is worth $472. And the average old age security check, which is the federal public pension system, the benefit there is $489. And if you count on top of that minor provincial subsidies that exist and tax credits, what you find is that for seniors in Canada, there is an average earnings floor uh, of $12,000 a year before tax. And, and that's, that's pitiful. I mean, it's bumped some people to, you know, near poverty, below poverty income. Some people have been able to, to muster some income on top of that. But we have a pension system in this country because of the influence of the private banking sector that's wanted to sell their products rather than allow the growth of our public pension system in the CPP. We have a pension system that is not delivering for the vast majority of Canadians, and that's what we have to fix. Joel, can you just quickly identify one or two of these financial companies? Absolutely. And what I want to do, if uh, your listeners will forgive me for being polemical, is, is give you a sense of the double standard. So Sun Life is the biggest insurance company in Canada. Its CEO is Don Stewart. And while Mr. Stewart and Sun Life have insisted with federal government after federal government, provincial government after provincial government, that they not expand mandatory pension coverage or public pensions, what Mr. Stewart has designed for his own pension pay package, we have found through research, is currently worth, his current executive pension today is worth $1.4 million, defined benefit plan. It's so big, it's maxed out, and he's actually having to tack on a supplementary RSP because he's, he's, he's taken advantage of all the income tax room they can shelter for his own platinum-plated pension plan. While Mr. Stewart has done that, and his company has insisted on limiting the growth of the CPP and public pensions. Last year, Sun Life closed its defined benefit secure pension plan to new hires at Sun Life, and they required any new employees be enrolled in a much less secure and much more fragile RRSP program. So what's clear to me is that the arrogance of the financial sector, the arrogance of finance capital is what we're dealing with here. Finance capital you know, is acting as if nothing happened in 2008 today. Profits are being raked in across all financial companies. And they would like Canadians to believe that we need to do what we did before, which is when it comes to pensions, when it comes to retirement savings, leave it to them to help us buy their individual products. But what we see from the cold hard facts is that that system works for executives very well, but it doesn't work for regular people very well. Joel Harden, we will pick up this topic with your co-author of the feature uh, in Canadian Dimension magazine, Pensions in Peril. Thank you very much for talking to us today on Alert Radio. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really glad CD did the series. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye-bye.
And now we turn to Andrea Levy, the second author in this special Pensions in Peril issue of Canadian Dimension magazine. Andrea is a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. She is self-employed, much like myself, and work issues are among the assignments that she addresses. The title of her CD article is A Precarious Position. Welcome back to Alert Radio, Andrea Levy. Hi. Thanks for to be here. Thank you for joining us again. You address the precarious retirement situation of precarious workers. Let's start off by identifying who are the precarious workers and why their situation in retirement is so precarious. Okay. Well, um, in fact, the, um, the numbers of the precarious employed have grown quite a lot in Canada. And now they, they constitute about a third of the workforce. And... Basically, there, there are sort of two overlapping categories. One is non-standard employment, and those are people who are involved in casual work, for instance, or temporary work, or contractual work, or self-employment, or part-time work. And all of these people um, are, not, are not in situations of conventional work contracts. And so many of them are also precariously employed in the sense that they don't have they don't have a lot of job security and they don't have access to the benefits that traditionally went along with having a full-time job for extended periods of time. What kind of pension can these people look forward to? Well, um, <laughs> in fact, many of them don't look forward to much at all and uh, I know a lot of people who are who are involved in non-standard employment who, you know, jokingly admit that they are, they're not going to be able to afford to retire, but, but it's really no joke um, because uh, they won't be covered by employer-sponsored pensions, and uh, ultimately they're going to have to rely primarily on the universal portion of the public pension, um, which really, in the end, does not afford an income far beyond um, the Statistics Canada low-income cutoff. So many of them are going to be in quite dire straits because they have no employer-sponsored pensions. They may not have much in the way of the Canada Pension Plan, depending on what they've contributed, because the Canadian Pension Plan is also tied to uh, labor force attachment. So the only, the only component that they can really rely on is the universal portion the uh, OAS, Old Age Security, and the Guaranteed Income Supplement, which, which really isn't enough to keep you out of poverty. Well, what solution do you propose for these precariously placed workers uh, in their retirement? Well, obviously, the solution that won't work is privatizing pensions. Um, that's the solution that's promoted by the right. And uh, clearly, people who are precariously employed and, and often have very low wages can't afford to put anything away. Um, in, in the form of RSPs, so that doesn't work at all. Um, the labor movement solution of, uh, of essentially raising the proportion of pre-retirement income afforded by the Canada Pension Plan would go a long way to help many of them, but, um, but it still leaves out or overburdens certain categories of workers like the casually employed and migrant workers who are excluded from the Canada Pension Plan and the own account self-employed who have to contribute both the employer and the employee portions. Um, and also, any increase in, in CPP contributions is going to hit low-income earners harder. Um, so so I, think, I think the rise of what 
you know, what's been dubbed the precariat, actually throws into relief the obsolescence of our model of tying social benefits to the labor contract. It's a model that's bound up with Fordism, which is an historically and geographically anomalous phase in which primarily male workers were employed at a single well-paid job for life. And the new model, which should include a universal pension plan, should be based on the principle of redistributing the gains in social productivity, which have been fueled in large part by public investment in technology through the universities and publicly funded research. Um, so I think that's, that's the direction that we need to move in. We have a universal health care system in this country, so in principle, a universal pension plan, which isn't dependent on labor force attachment, is not a stretch. And it would address the needs of workers who are seeing their employer-sponsored pensions scaled back or scrapped or transformed, as well as the needs of the growing ranks of the precariously employed and those who carry out the innumerable unpaid tasks of social reproduction. Well, Andrea, can we afford a universal pension plan of the kind you describe? Well, um, I think I have two responses to this. Uh, one is that I, I think af- after the big bailouts <laughs> um, during the economic crisis, I read someone who said, I'm never going to believe them when they say there isn't enough money <laughs> to do something. Um, and, and I think that's true. It's, it's largely a question of social priorities. So if we want to do it as a society, collectively, um, we, we can find the means to do it. Whether, whether that collective will exist is another question entirely, and there I, I tend to be less, uh, less sanguine. But... Um, but I think there's, there's another, um, another approach that we could look at, and that, that's actually one that's stressed by Sam Gindin in his contribution to the current issue of dimension, and that's the notion of uh, reducing working time. Because if you reflect on, on the whole concept of retirement, there's something fundamentally wrong with it. Um, there's no real reason or logical reason to concentrate all of our leisure time at the end of our lives and at the end of our careers. We should be redistributing it throughout our careers. And the way to do that would be shorter hours. And, you know, because we just celebrated May Day, it's, uh, it's good to point out that shorter hours is really the historic demand of the labor movement. And uh, it's unfortunate that it's been more or less shelved in North America, but I think we need to go, we need to go back to that and start looking at reducing working hours and making retirement uh, really a thing of the past. So that's the second response I have. Well, uh, Andrea, thank you very much for the uh, article that you co-authored in the recent special edition of Canadian Dimension magazine. And thank you for joining us today on Alert Radio. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. May Day around the world celebrates the contributions of working people to improving the quality of our lives and developing our collective capacities to making this a better place to work and live. On this 2010 May Day, in what shape do we find working people? And in what shape do we find their unions? In its special May Works issue, Canadian Dimension magazine held a roundtable discussion on these very questions. Here we pose them to Jane Stinson, Jane Stinson is a union activist and spent over 30 years working at the National Office of the Canadian Union of Public Employees. Happy May Day, Jane. Happy May Day. And welcome to Alert Radio. 
Thank you. These past 12 months have been rough for everyone, but especially for working people, and the next 12 supposedly months of recovery are certain to be rough as well. Describe for our listeners what working people in Canada have been through, how well we have survived the Great Recession, and what the main challenges are in the months ahead. Well, big questions. Um, I think that working people have been through a difficult time uh, with the recession, the recent Great Recession, as you call it. Um, and I think that the conse- consequences are still being felt, that it will have continued to have an impact um, well beyond the economic recovery that we're sort of starting to experience in some sectors. Um, you know, so the biggest, the biggest hits were in manufacturing and in some resource industries. Um, and... Workers there, uh, for example, auto workers, saw not only huge loss of jobs, but permanent rollbacks um, of established rights, benefits, and wages, uh, which is a, a lasting consequence, right? So that even though uh, some workers may be getting called back, um, uh, the restructuring has happened where um, they've been, bosses have been successful in lowering uh, labor costs. Workers have had to sort of be pushed back. And how about our unions? What shape are they in? Are they fighting back, or would you say that they're hunkering down, biding their time for better days? Are they looking inward or extending outward? We don't hear much about the unions these days. Jane Stinson? Um, I, I think it's a, a, a bit of both. I mean, I suppose that there are different things going on with different unions. Um, but I do think that there is a lot of uh, fight back going on, particularly at a grassroots level. I don't think that working people are accepting a lot of these changes lying down. Um, and, and so we see lots of examples of that, uh, especially in local communities, right? Um, at the national level, we're seeing uh, the CLC conduct a campaign to improve uh, pensions in particular, public pension plan, the Canada Pension Plan, which is really, really um, important for all working people, benefits everybody who has a job, not just union members. And, um, and uh, as well, they're, they're trying to sort of establish it to um, be based on 50% of wages, so it's a good thing. Um, I mean, it is a problem still for people who are not in the paid labor force uh, very much, they, they can't make the contributions or get the employer contributions to the Canada Pension Plan, but the CLC is calling for a better uh, guaranteed income supplement as well, so that will benefit all, all people, um, those inside uh, and particularly outside the paid labor force. So, you know, we are, we are seeing responses. We are seeing fight back. How about um, some examples, Jane? Can you tell me uh, some specific actions that are taking place uh, to um, counter this trend? Well, those uh, campaigns and efforts around um, improving Canada Pension Plan is one. Um, I think another thing we, I see a lot, uh, we see in QP and elsewhere, is fighting efforts to privatize public services, and public infrastructure. Um, this can take the form of uh, fighting water privatization at a community level, and you can get the unions and coalitions like the Council of Canadians working together uh, at communities to stop that from happening. 
What about uh, strike actions? Yeah, lots of, well, um, I don't know lots of strikes, but some of the strikes that are going on are very long, very drawn out, very difficult. Uh, For example, in Ottawa, uh, we had a strike at the Museum of Civilization that was, I think, the longest uh, public sector strike in this city. It was really, really tough bargaining uh, where workers were basically after really basic rights of uh, not wanting to be in totally precarious jobs, wanting to have some job security, and also to stop contracting out. Um, so that was a long, difficult strike. But in the end, they were, they were quite successful, and they really uh, mobilized a fair bit of public support and attention and used some really interesting methods like YouTube videos and um, things like that. Another strike, I think, in the private sector that, that's also been so long and drawn out has been the Valley Inco strike in Sudbury. Um, and uh, I'm not sure uh, that there's an end in sight, and uh, it's been going on for, I think, about a year now. Um, you know, as we see this sort of globalization of, of uh, particularly the mining industry, and they can just, you know, divert production elsewhere in the world and sort of uh, starve those workers into submission. Well, thank you very much, Jane Stinson, for speaking with us on Alert Radio today. Jane Stinson is a union activist and spent over 30 years at the National Office of the Canadian Union of Public Employees. Canadian mining companies are among the biggest in the world, and they are invested throughout South America, Asia, and Africa. They are also among the most reviled transnational corporations in the globe, especially among the villagers whose lives they have disrupted and whose lands they have despoiled. As we speak, a major conference is taking place in Toronto on the Canadian mining industry with participants from impacted communities coming from all over the world and within Canada. Now, among the speakers is Sakura Saunders, who is an editor for protestbarrack.net. Welcome to Alert Radio, Sakura. Thank you so much for having me. You've been monitoring mining companies from the north in their operations in the global south, including Canadian mining companies. Now, from your observations, um, who are the three worst Canadian mining companies? And give our listeners some instances for each, Sakura. Sure. Well, um, I'll just um, list an array of mining companies um, because they're all, you know, fairly bad in their operations. I took one in particular, Barrett Gold, and profiled it in about nine different countries. I'm in touch with you know, communities on the ground or NGOs that are working on campaigns against this company. Um, so Barrick Gold is the largest gold mining company. I would definitely list them amongst the worst, as well as Gold Corps, which is the second largest gold mining company, also based in Canada, um, you know, which, which has movements against it in Honduras, Guatemala, Argentina, um, and throughout the Americas, really. Okay. Um, Another one I would put as, as one of the worst, and this is not necessarily because of its size, but just because um, of what it's done in the past year, is Pacific Rim, who's operating in El Salvador. Um, there's been a series of uh, targeted assassinations in El Salvador after the strong resistance movement there was able to get the company to, um, or get the government to cancel the contract with the mine. And so let's talk a little bit about what makes uh, these companies that you've just stated so bad. Okay, well, I mean, I think one of the worst things about, you know, just mining in general is, 
is that it comes with a necessary amount of environmental contamination. Um, and it uses a ton of water. So typically, you know, when a mine starts, many of the streams nearby the mine will actually dry up because, you know, for example, one, mine, one large gold mine can use as much water as the entire bottled water industry in one year. Unbelievable. Um, so um, because of this environmental contamination, um, many times, you know, the people that f- feel that the most are the local communities, and so they resist the mine. And then that leads to all sorts of other problems. You know, you have these mining companies going in and interfering with local politics, um, buying off certain people, dividing families. Um, many times you'll have the mine um, hire security that intimidates local people. You know, for example, in you know, Pacific Rim, there's been a series of targeted assassinations um, because of the opposition to the mine in Papua New Guinea, um, the security guards, and in Tanzania, the security guards of barracks mines, um, you know, kill people that do alluvial mining, um, or, you know, for quote-unquote trespassing on the mine site, even though they live on the mine site. Right. Um, so I feel like the root cause of everything is, is this environmental contamination issue um, that leads to death um, directly and then also indirectly because it inspires community resistance. And so let's talk a little bit about uh, your opinion in terms of would these countries be better off, do you think, if these particular mining companies um, were sent packing? Definitely. So there's no positive, um, uh, no positives here. Well, I mean, you know, they do offer jobs and things like that. Um, but in terms of royalties and tax payments and things like that, Canadian mining companies pay very, very little. In fact, sometimes not at all. Like in the Dominican Republic right now, um, the country is up in arms. Like thousands are marching against the contract. And it's for economic reasons, not necessarily for environmental reasons just yet. Um, the mine is set to not pay any taxes at all until after it makes a 10% return on its investment of billions of dollars. Okay, so that's one instance that we're getting, right, in terms yeah. of that? So there's, there's economic and there's environmental reasons to oppose these mines. Uh, many people see these mines as economically exploitative because the majority of the wealth gets carried outside of the country. Um, And the jobs that they create, you know, um, mining companies will use this as a reason to um, support a mine. You know, that's basically the only good thing that they can talk about is the jobs. Right. But really, there's typically only, you know, a couple thousand jobs at the beginning for the construction phase. And then afterwards, you know, some of these mines don't employ, you know, more than a thousand people. And, of course, right now I'm talking mainly about um, open pit gold mining operations, okay. um, which don't employ as many people as um, mines with underground operations. All right. But of course, you know this is a complex issue, and it's hard for me to generalize. No, of course. So, in a nutshell, what I'm hearing is that the mining industry tends to claim that they will hire lots of people, but in a sense, only uh, the gold mining ones don't hire as many as the other ones. But that's still, in your opinion, not not enough to keep them there. Yeah, and many times what they'll do, for example, in Papua New Guinea and Tanzania, um, there is a strong small-scale mining culture before the large-scale mining operations took, you know, started to develop. And those small-scale mining operations employed a lot more people than currently the open-tail operation does. 
Okay. And so these small-scale mining operations, have they been put out of business by these big ones? Definitely. They've been force evicted. Um, and in some cases, you know, like in Papua New Guinea, um, they did not evict people in a sense that people are still living in the mine site. There's seven communities living within the special mining lease area um, that have traditionally done alluvial mining or panning for gold. Um, but now they have been criminalized and they are shot out for um, conducting those activities. Okay. Um, this is the week of May Day, as you know, so let's look for some positive stories of fighting back and protecting the environment. Can you share some with us? Well, I think that, you know, one of the most amazing stories, it's also very sad, is, is that of El Salvador. Um, you know, here's a community that organized um, against this company on a local level, built up a strong resistance, and was able to convince the state of El Salvador um, to cancel the mining contracts. The shares of Pacific Rim plummeted down to 26 cents a cent, 26 um, cents a share. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of a sudden you start getting these, these targeted assassinations, right? You know, Marcelo Rivera, he was missing for 14 days, found at the bottom of a well, missing all, his, all of his fingernails and toenails. You know, they shot a guy seven times in the back. They ran a priest off the road. Weeks later, they came back for the guy that was shot seven times in the back because he had survived, and then they killed him. And then they killed a pregnant woman, Dora Alicia, um, Mm -hmm. who was also married. She was a resistor herself, as was her husband. But my friend was actually in El Salvador for the wake of Dora Alicia, and she told me that it was a cumbia party till 5 in the morning because they're determined to not let... Canadian, these Canadian mining companies win through their brutal tactics. And so you know, are the Canadian... only strengthen their resolve. And are the Canadian mining companies, are these the ones that, uh, on a world scale, are they some of the worst then? Well, Canadian mining companies uh, make up the majority of the mining companies in the world. Okay. You know, so you know, it, it's hard to compete with, you know, U.S. mining company like Freeport McMorrin, which is operating in West Papua for you know, concentrated evilness. Um, you know, and the same could be said for Newmont mining and in, in also in the United States. But 75% of the world's mining and exploration companies are based in Canada. And wow. uh, what can be said about so many of these is that these mining operations are negotiated between these companies and nation states. And they often sell out their indigenous people and rural poor. And those are the people that suffer the consequences of the mining. And those are the people that the mine comes in conflict with. Right. And so how can people stay informed? We'll end it off on that in 30 seconds. Go ahead. How can people stand for them? Well, there's a lot to do. Stay informed. Stay informed. Stay informed. Sorry. That's okay. Um, People can stay informed. Um, There's a lot of websites that follow Canadian mining corporations. If you're interested in Barrick Gold, um, I run a website called protestbarrick.net. Okay. Um, If you want to stay informed in the sense that you want to find out what's happening, we have a group called Community Solidarity Response Toronto, solidarityresponse.net. And, um, you know, we try to respond to things like holding vigils for targeted assassinations and things like that. Um, Mines and Communities. Org and MiningWatch.ca are both amazing sources of information about this kind of stuff. And then the DominionPaper.ca um, um, is a magazine that happens to cover these issues a lot. Okay. Well, thank you so much. This is an issue that we could probably keep going on for quite a while. Um, thanks for keeping us informed, and we'll talk to you soon. 
Okay, thank you. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye. And that was Sakura Saunders, editor for protestbarrack.net. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik. This is Music is the Weapon, and this is our last show for the year. So what I decided to do was to bring you some of my very favorite songs. And then I start looking for very favorite songs and realized that I had thousands and thousands of very favorite songs, but it was a ridiculous quest right from the beginning. So here are a few songs that I like. Here's a song written by a French working man that became quite popular in the workers' movement. The Final, we'll follow the 
don't you just love the French Communist Party for producing something like that? It's part of an album called Le Chance de Revolutionnaire or something. It's a bunch of the old, old songs sung in French. Solidarity, a whole bunch of them. It's kind of a neat album. I was fortunate enough as a human being to be involved in, with Stan Rogers. In fact, I invested everything I owned in his first record. It was the only good business decision I've made in my entire life. It sure did well. And sure helped set us up. Here's Stan Rogers with my very favorite Stan Rogers song, The Genie Sea. Come on, you lads, draw near to me That I be not forsaken This day was lost, the Genie Sea And my living has been taken I'll go to see no more We set out this day in the bright sunrise The same as any other my son and I and old John Price in the boat named for my mother. I'll go to see no more. Now it's well, you know, what the fishing has been It's been scarce and hard and cruel But this day by God we sure caught, caught And we sang and we laughed like fools I'll go to see no more But strike we did like thunder John Price give a cry and pitched overside Now it's forever he's gone under I'll go to see no more Now a leak we've sprung let there be no If the genie see were saving, John Price is drowned and slipped away. So I'll catch the hole while you're bailing. I'll go to see. But no leak I found from bow to hold No rock 
it was that got But what I found made me heart stop cold For every seam poured water I'll go to see no more My God, I cried as she went down That boat was like no other My father built her when I was nine And named her for my mother I'll go to see no more And sure I could have another maid In the boat shop down in Dover But I would not love the keel they laid Like the one the waves roll over I'll go to see no more So come on, you lads, draw near to me That I be not forsaken This day was lost the genie And my whole life has been taken I'll go to see no more That was Stan Rogers with the Genie Sea. What a story that is. Another story, of course, is the 1960s and the influence that has been since that time exerted by Bob Dylan on our whole culture and our whole life. Here's a bunch of people who sing English traditional music mostly, doing their own interpretation of the times they are a-changing. Come gather round people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you'd better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are a-changing Come writers and critics who prophesize with your pen And keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin And there's no telling who that it's naming For the loser now will be later to win For the times they are a-changing 
Come, senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. The battle outside raging will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. For the times they are a-changing. Come mothers and fathers throughout the land And don't criticize what you can't understand Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command Your old road is rapidly aging Get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand For the times they are a-changing The line it is drawn and the curse it is cast The slow one now will later be fast As the present now will later be past the order is rapidly fading, and the first one now will later be last. For the times they are a change. Oh, I'm just a typical American boy from a typical American town. I believe in God and Senator Dodd and I keep an old Castro down. And when it came my time to serve, I knew better dead than red. But when I got to my old draft board, buddy, this is what I said. Sarge, I'm only 18, I got a ruptured spleen and I always carry a purse. I've got eyes like a bat and my feet are flat and my asthma's getting worse. Yes, think of my career, my sweetheart dear, my poor old invalid aunt. Besides, I ain't no fool, I'm a-going to school and I'm a-working in a defense plant. I got a dislocated disc and a racked up back, I'm allergic to flowers and bugs. And when the bombshell hits, I get epileptic fits and I'm addicted to a thousand drugs. I got the weakness woes, I can't touch my toes, I can hardly reach my knees. And if the enemy came close to me, oh, I'd probably start to sneeze. I'm only 18, got a ruptured spleen and always I've got eyes like a bat, my feet are flat, my asthma's getting worse. Yes, think of my career, my sweetheart dear, my poor old invalid aunt. Besides, I ain't no fool, I'm a-going to school, and I'm a-working in a defense plan. Ooh, I hate showing lie, and I hope he dies, but one thing you gotta see, that someone's gotta go over there, and that someone isn't me. So I wish you well, Sarge, give him hell, kill me a thousand or so. And if you ever get a war without blood and gore, I'll be the first to go. Yes, I'm only 18, I got a ruptured spleen and always carry a purse. I've got eyes like a bat and my feet are flat and my asthma's getting worse. Yes, think of my career, my sweetheart dear, my poor old invalid aunt. Besides, I ain't no fool, I'm going to school and I'm working in a defense plan. That was the Draft Dodger Rag with the late wonderful Phil Oaks and before that, the finest kind from Ottawa, Ontario with the times that are a-changing. 
I went to Massey Hall once to see the Clancy Brothers, Tommy Makem and the Clancy Brothers. I'd seen them before, but here was a whole big, huge, sold-out Massey Hall full of Irish people, basically, and a couple of Jewish folkies. And suddenly they started the song. It's called Oro Sheila Bahawelia, and that whole audience stood up and sang it with them in the most unbelievably beautiful, harmonics, inspiring moment. It's written by Patrick Pierce, the revolutionary. It's a fine song. Tommy Makem and the Clancy Brothers singing Oro Sheila Bahawalya. And that's it for this year, folks. We're not going to see you till next year. So keep up that revolutionary work. Long live the revolution. See you next year. That's it for another season of Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Alby. And remember, you can always check our past shows at CanadianDimension.com to listen to our archives. Have a great summer. And I bid a fond farewell to the team here at Alert Radio as I am moving on to other projects. It has been a great honor to work in the service of independent media. Bye, Chris. Sigh. I'll miss you guys. Our thanks as usual to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension magazine, Saigonic. And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days comes to us from Ben Wood. And of course, Mitch Badolik with Music is the Weapon. 
Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com.